Hi, and welcome to Fado, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, fairy tales, and fear. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. It's episode 20, and it seems like just yesterday we were kicking this adventure off back in late May. And now here we are, already heading into October. I think it would be downright irresponsible of me not to do something special for you this month. What kind of folklore and fairy tale podcast would this be without doing my due diligence during the spookiest part of the year? And so, expect more than the usual four Sunday episodes this month, and a few surprises along the way. And also, expect to spend a little time shaking in your shoes. We're starting this month off with a three-part episode regarding one of the masters of modern horror. Even if you've never heard of him, you've seen the influence of his work. He is considered the father of the cosmic horror genre, and the world he created, to this day, shows up in all corners of entertainment and media. His body of work puts forth a singular, terrifying idea. What we don't know absolutely can hurt us. And the moment we begin to understand even the smallest part of that unfathomably vast and dark reality, we are likely to go quite insane, or die trying. This is the work of Howard Phillips Lovecraft. I'm going to read his most recognizable story for you. The Call of Cthulhu is probably H.P. Lovecraft's most influential tale. Cthulhu himself is certainly Lovecraft's most famous creation. There are movies, games, and even the works of other authors that borrow from the world Lovecraft envisioned in this and other stories. His writing can be challenging in some ways, and you'll see what I mean. Lovecraft had a vast vocabulary and was not afraid to use it. In some ways, it's much easier to listen to than to read. I can't possibly define all of the 25-cent words in this text, but I do encourage you to look them up if you get lost. I certainly had to work on pronunciations. And that's the English part. It says nothing about the parts that are written in some long-dead language from beyond the stars. Nevertheless, what Lovecraft manages to do is create a claustrophobic, gritty world from the perspective of his scholarly main character, and a darkly ominous tone unlike anything else. It's one part detective pulp fiction, and one part hopeless dread. I'll add a little bit more about H.P. Lovecraft as we go along, But one last bit before we get into the story that I feel I need to cover up front is that Lovecraft's personal life and story is not a happy one. I don't need to go into much detail in that regard, but I can tell you that he was troubled. Along with that, he did possess some personal prejudices and beliefs that colored his perceptions of reality. In this story and others of his, you'll hear those beliefs bleed over into his work in places. Some of the language used in Lovecraft's stories is simply an artifact of the time in which he lived, and some of the words used are off-putting and even offensive to the modern ear. Language, as I've said before, changes over time. 
That, along with the casually prejudicial moments of the tale, can be unsettling today. But from the beginning, I made the decision to preserve the language of the authors I'm reading where I can. So I wanted to warn you of that ahead of time, so that you, or anyone listening with you, could decide for yourself how best to proceed. Ultimately, Lovecraft is a flawed man with some shortcomings, just like any of us. But despite his failings, he managed to create a world that has inspired some of the greatest horror in history. And now, as written by H.P. Lovecraft in 1926, and published in the pulp magazine Weird Tales in 1928, The Call of Cthulhu. Found among the papers of the late Francis Wayland Thurston of Boston. Of such great powers or beings there may be conceivably a survival. A survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity. Forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. Algernon Blackwood One, the horror in clay. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation, or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Theosophists have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle, wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They have hinted at strange survivals in terms which would freeze the blood if not masked by a bland optimism. But it is not from them that there came the single glimpse of forbidden eons which chills me when I think of it, and maddens me when I dream of it. That glimpse, like all dread glimpses of truth, flashed out from an accidental piecing together of separated things, in this case an old newspaper item and the notes of a dead professor. I hope that no one else will accomplish this piecing out, certainly if I live, I shall never knowingly supply a link in so hideous a chain. I think that the professor too intended to keep silent regarding the part he knew, and that he would have destroyed his notes had not sudden death seized him. 
My knowledge of the thing began in the winter of 1926 and 27, with the death of my granduncle George Gamel Angel, Professor Emeritus of Semitic Languages in Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island. Professor Angel was widely known as an authority on ancient inscriptions, and had frequently been resorted to by the heads of prominent museums, so that his passing at the age of 92 may be recalled by many. Locally, interest was intensified by the obscurity of the cause of death. The professor had been stricken whilst returning from the Newport boat, falling suddenly, as witnesses said, after having been jostled by a nautical-looking negro who had come from one of the queer dark courts on the precipitous hillside which formed a shortcut from the waterfront to the deceased's home in William Street. Physicians were unable to find any visible disorder, but concluded after perplexed debate that some obscure lesion of the heart, induced by the brisk ascent of so steep a hill and so elderly a man, was responsible for the end. At the time I saw no reason to dissent from this dictum, but latterly I am inclined to wonder, and more than wonder. As my granduncle's heir and executor, for he died a childless widower, I was expected to go over his papers with some thoroughness, and, for that purpose, moved his entire set of files and boxes to my quarters in Boston. Much of the material which I correlated will be later published by the American Archaeological Society. But there was one box which I found exceedingly puzzling, and which I felt much averse from showing to other eyes. It had been locked, and I did not find the key till it occurred to me to examine the personal ring which the professor carried always in his pocket. Then indeed I succeeded in opening it, but when I did so seemed only to be confronted by a greater and more closely locked barrier. For what could be the meaning of the queer clay bas-relief and disjointed jotlings, ramblings, and cuttings which I found— Had my uncle, in his latter years, become credulous of the most superficial impostures? I resolved to search out the eccentric sculptor responsible for this apparent disturbance of an old man's peace of mind. The bas-relief was a rough rectangle, less than an inch thick, and about five by six inches in area, obviously of modern origin. Its designs, however, were far from modern in atmosphere and suggestion. For although the vagaries of cubism and futurism are many and wild, they do not often reproduce that cryptic regularity which lurks in prehistoric writing. And writing of some kind the bulk of these designs seems certainly to be, though my memory, despite much familiarity with the papers and collections of my uncle, failed in any way to identify this particular species, or even to hint at its remotest affiliations." Above these apparent hieroglyphics was a figure of evidently pictorial intent, though its impressionistic execution forbade a very clear idea of its nature. It seemed to be a sort of monster, or symbol representing a monster, of a form which only a diseased fancy could conceive. If I say that my somewhat extravagant imagination yielded simultaneous pictures of an octopus, a dragon, and a human caricature— I shall not be unfaithful to the spirit of the thing. A pulpy, tentacled head surmounted a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings, but it was the general outline of the whole which made it most shockingly frightful. 
Behind the figure was a vague suggestion of a cyclopean architectural background. The writing accompanying this oddity was, aside from a stack of press cuttings, in Professor Angel's most recent hand, and made no pretense to literary style. What seemed to be the main document was headed Cthulhu Cult, in letters painstakingly printed to avoid the erroneous reading of a word so unheard of. The manuscript was divided into two sections, the first of which was headed 1925, Dream and Dreamwork of H. A. Wilcox, 7 Thomas Street, Providence, Rhode Island, and the second, Narrative of Inspector John R. Legrasse, 121 Bienville Street, New Orleans, Louisiana, at 1908 AAS Meeting, Notes on Same and Professor Webb's Account. The other manuscript papers were all brief notes, some of them accounts of the queer dreams of different persons, some of them citations from theosophical books and magazines, notably W. Scott Eliot's Atlantis and the Lost Lemuria, and the rest comments on long-surviving secret societies and hidden cults, with references to passages in such mythological and anthropological sourcebooks as Fraser's Golden Bough and Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe. The cuttings largely alluded to outre mental illnesses and outbreaks of group folly or mania in the spring of 1925. The first half of the principal manuscript told a very peculiar tale. It appears that on March 1, 1925, a thin, dark young man of neurotic and excited aspect had called upon Professor Angel, bearing the singular clay bas-relief, which was then exceedingly damp and fresh. His card bore the name of Henry Anthony Wilcox, and my uncle had recognized him as the youngest son of an excellent family slightly known to him, who had latterly been studying sculpture at the Rhode Island School of Design, and living alone at the Fleur-de-Lis building near that institution. Wilcox was a precocious youth of known genius but great eccentricity, and had from childhood excited attention through the strange stories and odd dreams he was in the habit of relating. He called himself psychically hypersensitive, but the staid folk of the ancient commercial city dismissed him as merely queer. Never mingling much with his kind, he had dropped gradually from social visibility, and was now known only to a small group of esthetes from other towns— even the Providence Art Club, anxious to preserve its conservatism, had found him quite hopeless. On the occasion of his visit, ran the professor's manuscript, the sculptor abruptly asked for the benefit of his host's archaeological knowledge in identifying the hieroglyphics on the bas-relief. He spoke in a dreamy, stilted manner which suggested pose and alienated sympathy, and my uncle showed some sharpness in replying— for the conspicuous freshness of the tablet implied kinship with anything but archaeology. Young Wilcox's rejoinder, which impressed my uncle enough to make him recall and record it verbatim, was of a fantastically poetic cast which must have typified his whole conversation, and which I have since found highly characteristic of him. He said, "'It is new, indeed, for I made it last night in a dream of strange cities,' And dreams are older than brooding Tyre, or the contemplative Sphinx, or garden-girded Babylon. It was then that he began that rambling tale which suddenly played upon a sleeping memory and won the fevered interest of my uncle. 
There had been a slight earthquake tremor the night before, the most considerable felt in New England for some years, and Wilcox's imagination had been keenly affected. Upon retiring, he had had an unprecedented dream of great cyclopean cities, of titan blocks and sky-flung monoliths, all dripping with green ooze and sinister with latent horror. Hieroglyphics had covered the walls and pillars, and from some undetermined point below had come a voice that was not a voice, a chaotic sensation which only fancy could transmute into sound, but which he attempted to render by the almost unpronounceable jumble of letters. Cthulhu Vatagan. This verbal jumble was the key to the recollection which excited and disturbed Professor Angel. He questioned the sculptor with scientific minuteness, and studied with almost frantic intensity the bas-relief on which the youth had found himself working, chilled and clad only in his nightclothes when waking had stolen bewilderingly over him. My uncle blamed his old age, Wilcox afterward said, for his slowness in recognizing both hieroglyphics and pictorial design. Many of his questions seemed highly out of place to his visitor, especially those which tried to connect the latter with strange cults or societies. And Wilcox could not understand the repeated promises of silence which he was offered in exchange for an admission of membership in some widespread mystical or paganly religious body. When Professor Angel became convinced that the sculptor was indeed ignorant of any cult or system of cryptic lore— he besieged his visitor with demands for future reports of dreams. This bore regular fruit, for after the first interview the manuscript records daily calls of the young man, during which he related startling fragments of nocturnal imagery, whose burden was always some terrible cyclopean vista of dark and dripping stone, with a subterrene voice or intelligence shouting monotonously in enigmatical sense-impacts, uninscribable save as gibberish. The two sounds most frequently repeated are those rendered by the letters Cthulhu and Rulier. On March 23rd, the manuscript continued. Wilcox failed to appear, and inquiries at his quarters revealed that he had been stricken with an obscure sort of fever and taken to the home of his family in Waterman Street. He had cried out in the night, arousing several other artists in the building, and had manifested, since then, only alternations of unconsciousness and delirium. My uncle at once telephoned the family, and from that time forward kept close watch of the case, calling often at the Thayer Street office of Dr. Toby, whom he learned to be in charge. The youth's febrile mind apparently was dwelling on strange things, and the doctor shuddered now and then as he spoke of them. They included not only a repetition of what he had formerly dreamed, but touched wildly on a gigantic thing, miles high, which walked or lumbered about. He at no time fully described this object, but occasional frantic words, as repeated by Dr. Toby, convinced the professor that it must be identical with the nameless monstrosity he had sought to depict in his dream sculpture. Reference to this object, the doctor added, was invariably a prelude to the young man's subsidence into lethargy. His temperature, oddly enough, was not greatly above normal, but his whole condition was otherwise such as to suggest true fever rather than mental disorder. On September 2nd, at about 3 p.m., 
every trace of Wilcox's malady suddenly ceased. He sat upright in bed, astonished to find himself at home, and completely ignorant of what had happened in dream or reality since the night of March 22nd. Pronounced well by his physician, he returned to his quarters in three days, but to Professor Angel he was of no further assistance. All traces of strange dreaming had vanished with his recovery, and my uncle kept no record of his night thoughts after a week of pointless and irrelevant accounts of thoroughly usual visions. Here the first part of the manuscript ended, but references to certain of the scattered notes gave me much material for thought, so much, in fact, that only the ingrained skepticism then forming my philosophy can account for my continued distrust of the artist. The notes in question were those descriptive of the dreams of various persons covering the same period as that in which young Wilcox had had his strange visitations. My uncle, it seems, had quickly instituted a prodigiously far-flung body of inquiries amongst nearly all the friends whom he could question without impertinence, asking for nightly reports of their dreams and the dates of any notable visions for some time past. The reception of his request seems to have been varied, but he must, at the very least, have received more responses than any ordinary man could have handled without a secretary. This original correspondence was not preserved, but his notes formed a thorough and really significant digest. Average people in society and business, New England's traditional salt of the earth, gave an almost completely negative result, though scattered cases of uneasy but formless nocturnal impressions appear here and there, always between March 23rd and April 2nd, the period of young Wilcox's delirium. Scientific men were little more affected, though four cases of vague description suggest fugitive glimpses of strange landscapes, and in one case there is mentioned a dread of something abnormal. It was from the artists and poets that the pertinent answers came, and I know that panic would have broken loose had they been able to compare notes. As it was, lacking their original letters, I half suspected the compiler of having asked leading questions— or of having edited the correspondence in corroboration of what he had latently resolved to see. That is why I continued to feel that Wilcox, somehow cognizant of the old data which my uncle had possessed, had been imposing on the veteran scientist. These responses from esthetes told a disturbing tale. From February 28th to April 2nd, a large proportion of them had dreamed very bizarre things— the intensity of the dreams being immeasurably the stronger during the period of the sculptor's delirium. Over a fourth of these who reported anything reported scenes and half-sounds not unlike those which Wilcox had described, and some of the dreamers confessed acute fear of the gigantic, nameless thing visible toward the last. One case which the note describes with emphasis was very sad. The subject, a widely known architect with leanings toward theosophy and occultism, went violently insane on the date of young Wilcox's seizure, and expired several months after the incessant screamings to be saved from some escaped denizen of hell. Had my uncle referred to these cases by name instead of merely by number, I should have attempted some corroboration and personal investigation, but as it was I succeeded in tracing down only a few— all of these, however, bore out the notes in full. I have often wondered if all the objects of the professor's questioning felt as puzzled as did this fraction. It is well that no explanation shall ever reach them. 
the press cuttings, as I have intimated, touched on cases of panic, mania, and eccentricity during the given period. Professor Angel must have employed a cutting bureau, for the number of extracts was tremendous and the sources scattered throughout the globe. Here was a nocturnal suicide in London, where a lone sleeper had leapt from a window after a shocking cry. Here, likewise, a rambling letter to the editor of a paper in South America, where a fanatic deduces a dire future from visions he has seen. A dispatch from California describes a theosophist colony as donning white robes en masse for some glorious fulfillment which never arrives, whilst items from India speak guardedly of serious native unrest toward the end of March. Voodoo orgies multiply in Haiti, and Africa outposts report ominous mutterings. American officers in the Philippines find certain tribes bothersome about this time, and New York policemen are mobbed by hysterical Levantines on the night of March 22nd and 23rd. The west of Ireland, too, is full of wild rumor and legendary, and a fantastic painter named Ardois Bonneau hangs a blasphemous dream landscape in the Paris Spring Salon of 1926. And so numerous are the recorded troubles in insane asylums that only a miracle can have stopped the medical fraternity from noting strange parallelisms and drawing mystified conclusions. A weird bunch of cuttings, all told, and I can at this date scarcely envisage the callous rationalism with which I set them aside. But I was then convinced that young Wilcox had known of the older matters mentioned by the professor. If you're having fun listening to Fado, you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. I'm on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Don't forget to share and leave a review if you like what you're hearing. If you leave me comments or questions, I might even be able to read them on the air. You can also keep up and follow me on Facebook as well as Instagram. I'm at Fado Podcast. If you want to support me more directly, you can become a patron. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There will be behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, and also merch. I have stickers already, and if you become a patron, I can guarantee you one in your membership letter. That's right, I'll send you a personally handwritten note in the mail with a sticker. Also, if you join, you'll get a mention here on the show. Okay, that brings us to the end of episode 20. Watch for the next chapter of Call of Cthulhu, episode 21, coming out on October 7th. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time. <laughs>